0: Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.
1: From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruck. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 10, Episode 6, Did She Do It? In this week's episode, we finally completed our statement analysis of Jennifer Jeffley's confession. Throughout that process, what we learned, what I learned at least, was that Jennifer, throughout her statement, demonstrated no guilty knowledge of the crime. She did not present officers with anything that they didn't already know. And in fact, she got many elements of the crime scene incorrect. And the details that she did provide seem to have been details that may have been provided by Detective Allen himself. So the question that I posed to you at the end of the episode was, did she do it? Of course, we can't know with 100% assurity at this point if she did, but I was interested in hearing your opinions. And I'm also interested in hearing the opinions of the two men that are sitting in the studio with me right now, Zach Weaver and Mike Bussing. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates.
2: And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special.
1: From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. 100th cappuccino by eight, 200th customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only, T's and C's apply.
0: All right, guys. We got a lot of questions from social media, so let's get into these. Our first one comes from Lynn. This episode explains some things, but any insight into the two made-up people in Jen's story, it would seem like a cover story to protect someone. What do you think?
1: I think it 100% came from Detective Allen. If you read his reports, he says in there that he he wrote in his report that he suggested to Jennifer that maybe she's lying because she's afraid that whoever did this would hurt her or her family. And then she goes along with that. I know we've talked about
2: it a couple times, but I'm still like weirded out by the fact that she brought up all these details.
1: Like even, even if she just made them up, it was a lot of detail to just make up. I don't think, I don't think it went down like that. I really don't. I I don't think that it takes two hours to write that statement. So we have like a time. Someone figured out the time from the beginning to end her first statement, which is five pages long. And it was like, Memory serves like forty or forty five minutes is how long it took to make that statement. This one took over two hours. Or no, I think it took exactly two hours. Okay. So I don't think Jennifer's sitting there saying, let let's take the white object thing. I'm sure we'll get into it, right? The 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 pot. And we've already talked about the fact that in her first statement, she didn't even know it was white. She thought it was an orange, orangish red flower pot because that's what it looked like after the crime scene. But then it changes in this statement to be a white object. So I don't think that's Jennifer saying. Well, then they hit her in the head with a white object. I think that is Detective Allen making suggestions. Like, so did someone hit her in the head? Then I mean, there was that broken thing by her head, so someone must have hit her in the head. Yeah, someone hit her in the head. Well, What they hit her in the head with was it? And maybe she says something. In the orange, red, whatever. I'm I'm just spitballing a possible scenario here. And he's like, well, uh, so so that white object was so someone grabbed. A white object and hits her in the head, and breaks it. And yes, a white, you know, th- th- that's how I think this statement came together. Yeah, I have to agree because
2: I can't imagine her saying white object like no. that coming from her. That they picked it up and hit
1: her with a white object. Right. It, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, it, it, but it, it it fits with. It, and that was kind of when, when I was going through, you know, is she showing guilty knowledge of the crime or is she giving a scenario that's based entirely on what the police already knew? And those are, and this is not just this case. That's how you do a statement analysis. There's a couple things you're looking. You're looking for a flowing narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. That that things that everything leads into each other. Like so, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. I know it's getting off the question, but getting back to like the white pot. So that that's a big. No matter what case I'm doing when I'm because because I, I do practice statement analysis all the time. Jim Clemente used to send me statement analysis to do to practice this, and that's one of the things that I'm looking for. So the first thing that catches my attention, besides the fact that she calls it a white object, which is weird, especially because, again, she used to think it was an orange object, is that we don't see where or when it came from. So in a true confession, a true flowing narrative where someone is giving you the truth about what happened, you're expecting to see. So he walked in. The woman ran towards the door. He grabbed a white flower pot off of an end table. He held it up and threatened her. And to shut up, she screamed again. So then he broke it over her head. That's that's what a true confession should look like. There's like, there's there's no question there. That it, it flows. In this one, and in many of the other ones, the the areas where I have pointed out so far, where there's lies, where to me it seems like something's being made up, is where there's an interruption in that flow in the narrative. You know, another example is is uh, it's KD. You know, when when he's given his statement, everything makes sense. And it's in a logical order and it's step by step. I heard screaming. I got, I was like half awake. There was more screaming. And I heard a door open in the living room. And then Youngster got out of bed and he stepped over me. And then Youngster went out the door. I followed Youngster out the door. Eva went down the stairs. Youngster went behind her. I went behind him. Everything is like boom, 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 boom. And then we get to the part of the story that has been, that has been alleged was all made up based on Eva saying. Jennifer says Eva told her to say that the whole screaming thing happened and she witnessed it, right? Well, then I'm looking at their statements, and when we get to that part, everything falls apart. There's no beginning, middle, and end anymore. Now it's we're outside, and she was screaming, and I was screaming, and then we went back inside, and then the next sentence, he's back outside again, but he never says how he went back outside. And now Jennifer's walking up. I see Jennifer walking up. Eva's talking to the manager. There's no, you know, I mean, there's no, there's nothing that connects point A to C. I think it's how I put it in the episode. But So those are the big issues there. And so that's where I think these details come from. Because you're seeing these weird details with no, with with no flowing narrative. There's no sequence of events that leads up to them. But getting back to this question, uh, the name. So what I'm reading in Alan's report about, this interview where she's changing her story. What Alan does is it's classic read technique, which has been known; it's been outlawed in some countries because it's it's known to to to, to coerce false confessions. And so, you know, you start off with this interview stage. You get to know them. You you, know, you let them put something on the record. You have a conver- long conversation with them. They say for at least four hours. You want to do that, and so you know and most confessions come after the four hour mark. Uh, you know, and so he's, you know, he's he's splitting candy with her, and he's chatting with her, and she's getting the story. And then you get what you do is you present, you point out lies in their story, so that puts you on the defensive, right? So Zach, so if you and I, I'm I'm interviewing you, mm-hmm. I have you tell me a story, and then I tell you that you're lying, and this is how I know how. So now you're on the defensive. Now you're scrambling. You're scared. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even guilty or innocent. It doesn't matter. And in this case, they use Eva's story as the truth. So this is what I know is true, and what you're telling me isn't true. And in her case, he says in his report that he tells her that Eva, Katie, and Youngster all gave the same story, and none of them line up with what you're saying, and therefore I know you're lying. And she still, for hours, sticks to her original story, even with her telling that. And then eventually he says, I know you're lying. And she says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. And then she changes it a little bit to try to fit with what he told her. So once in the read technique, once you get someone on the defensive, once you've got them to put something on the record, and then you've confronted them with evidence that they're lying, which in this case there wasn't actual evidence that that, that she was lying, but he was telling her that he had evidence that she was lying. And that's when they come into a big problem with juveniles because it's easy to convince them they're lying when they're not. And so then, once you really get them on the ropes, then you present them with an out. So you, if you watch the show, a great show to learn about some of this stuff is on Oxygen Network called uh, Criminal Confessions, where they show these actual interrogations uh, with real suspects, real interrogations, how they get confessions out of them. And it's the same process every time. So what they might do is not not in this particular case. I so would say someone's you know murdered in their home. They suspect the husband did it, and he's denied, 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 denied. He tells them what he did and then they're like, "Well, we have video surveillance showing that what you just said happened isn't what happened. We know that you run this side of town. Why are you lying to us?" Get him on the ropes and then you present him with an out like, "Look, things happen. I you know, you know, I I know you didn't mean to kill her, but you know, maybe she maybe she was mad at you. Maybe maybe she threw a punch at you first. Could she have could she have maybe started a fight with you and maybe it was an accident." And then You'll see it time and time again. They'll be like, that, that's what happened. Okay. I'll tell you the truth. She came after me with a knife and that's why I shot her. And as part of the read technique, what you're doing then is now you've, you've made a step forward, right? Now, not only have you caught them in a lie, but now you've got them to admit, not only the first step you're trying to do, you try to do is get them to admit that they were there. And then you try to get them to admit that they committed the crime. Even if it's not the right way, but you get him to say, I was there. Then you get him to say, I committed the crime. And then after that, now you've got him. Now they've confessed. Mm -hmm. Then you hone in and get the truth out of them. You know, and you get the uh, out of what actually happened. And that's exactly what Alan's doing here. So he writes in his report. I'm not assuming it's written in his report that he suggests to her that maybe she's just covering up for somebody because she's afraid for herself and her family. That is 100% classic read technique. That he's giving her, he's giving her an out. And she takes it. So she, she takes it and says, you're right. And it says in her confession, she says at the beginning of that statement that I was lying before because I was afraid for my family. And when you read his report, that was his suggestion. That's fact. That's on the record. So she says that I was, I was lying because I was covering for my family. But now she's got a problem. Now she has to say who these guys are that she was covering for when there were no guys. And so she 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 makes up a story, you know, and I'm sure that was with, was suggesting and prodding along the way. I don't know how she arrived at those names, but, you know, I, I'm sure it wasn't. So, OK, so there was this, there was this guy, Ernest, who people call E, this guy, Tim, who people call slow. And it, I'm sure it wasn't like that. Well, what were their names? Can you remember them? Did they have street names? You know, it, that's what's happening here, in
0: my okay. opinion. Erica says, "Since Bob has been in contact with some family, do we know if there are any old photos of Catalina's apartment, so we could confirm where the potted plant was, or at least wasn't?" You know, I don't know when
1: I when I met Juan. I mean, Catalina only had one family member, and that was Juan Mendiola, who you heard from in episode one. I didn't think to, I didn't know to ask that question at that point. I didn't have crime scene photos yet, so on my next try, and unfortunately, I don't have a phone number for him. I only know where he lives, so. On my my next trip to Houston, I'm going to swing by and talk to him again. I kind of doubt it, but it's possible.
0: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Karen's got a few questions. First, she says, regarding June Sage's report, who had no reason to lie, much has been said about why would Jennifer knock on the wrong door, given the close proximity to each other? Could she have heard a knock on Catalina's door and thought it was hers? You know, I thought that
1: might be a possibility, but as I've read back through june's statement i don't I don't think so because it's not just the sound she says when she when she the knock is on her door, she hears a knock at her door. she starts looking through the peephole and sees the girl standing outside of her door and then watches as she then moved over. To Catalina's door, so unless she's completely wrong, what the, the officer did say that she was very confused and she was getting details wrong and mixing up present facts and and past facts. So who knows? But I mean, based on on what we have on the record, she she's she described watching the girl outside her apartment knock on her door and then watched her then move over to Catalina's. Her knocking on that door just doesn't make any sense to
2: me whatsoever. If she was going to check on Catalina, she knows which apartment is. It's going to be directly below Eva's apartment, so it's going to be set up very similar. The door's going to be in the same location right. on the first floor. So I don't know why she would go to that door. So that leads me to believe that it was. She really was
1: knocking on the other door, and she just heard it. It's possible. I think that if Jennifer knocked on the wrong door first, that it definitely doesn't fit with this planned attack that she described in her confession. If she knows it's her car, it's the lady that lives below Eva, she knows it's her I mean I mean granted, that whole story is bullshit like we want to break in so so and steal her stuff and and you know presumably we want to get away with it and so the plan is to knock on the door and say it's me, Jennifer, your neighbor from upstairs, so that they can break in and steal her car, which is bullshit but besides that, her then knocking on the wrong door absolutely doesn't make sense doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it was just her checking on her but that's also based on a story that she has said is false which is she said the the whole thing about her hearing Eva in, in again all I have is her crime watch daily interview which in that the way at least the way it was cut she says she never heard the screaming that she she showed up and then we don't get a whole lot of detail there so if somehow as she's approaching, Eva says in her first statement that she sees what she thinks is Jennifer approaching the scene. So, if through that commotion Jennifer knows something's wrong, then I could see her going and knocking on the wrong door because maybe she, if, if she just sees Eva come from under there or something, you know, she doesn't know which door she was at, or maybe she gets there. You know, and again, we we don't. Eva's entire story could be bullshit. Say Eva, Katie, and youngster just as a possible scenario. Let's say they're all lying. Let's say that they, they never was the fake voice coming from inside. That never even happened. But I mean, they they come out and they they see something going on. They they leave. It could have been that Jennifer gets there right after them and hears you know maybe Catalina's not dead yet and just hears Catalina moaning from inside and she can't tell which door it's coming from and goes. You know there there are scenario all I'm getting at is there are scenarios where it maybe makes sense that she knocked on the wrong door. Or it could have even been trying to get a phone. You know, there's there's scenarios where it could make sense. The only scenario where I absolutely can't make any sense of it is if there's this two-day-long planned attack on Catalina and she goes and knocks on the wrong door.
0: Secondly, Karen says, June says she hears items being thrown around and then the scream. That seemed to be dismissed because it was only one scream. If we're saying Jennifer's confession was fabricated, then isn't that the only place where multiple screams were reported? If so, then could June Sage's account be accurate? Well, yeah, I don't. I don't think we can take anything.
1: Look, I mean, it cuts. It cuts the same way any way you look at it. So, if you think Jennifer's guilty, then I would say you we believe her confession, right? I mean, she she gives a very detailed confession. There's no utility in lying about when Catalina was screaming. Okay, so if she was there, and was part of the murder. She's already confessed to it. Why would she lie about that? So if that's the case, if Jennifer's guilty, then then it doesn't fit with the scream June heard being after knocking on the door. Because it doesn't fit with Jennifer's confession, which is the only way that – it's the only evidence against her is her own words that that she was a part of it. I don't think I'm articulating this well. Are you tracking me, Zach, or am I way off? Yeah, I could probably use a little clarification, Bob. Okay. June hearing the scream being the murder in my opinion doesn't fit with any scenario okay so if she heard the scream after Jen knocked on the door and and if that scream was the murder then that means Jennifer's guilty right because then the because that means she knocked on the door as part of the attack before it happened but that does not fit with the scenario Jen gives in her confession of the murder of the murder the, o- the only way that I can make it make sense in my mind is that it was the scream was on the body discovery. Uh, and it doesn't mean that's right. That's just the only way it fits for me, partially because I think she saw Red Rock come and go. And the fact that KD saw Red Rock and KD was asleep until or youngster, I mean, and KD and youngster were asleep until the scream start and until the, they, they heard the screams below them, the attack. So it just it just fits better to me with that scenario. As far as the things being thrown around, I mean, you, you got to look. All that was written is that she said a little while after after she heard the knocking, after the knocking all started, she said she it sounded like someone threw something around the apartment. And then I heard a blood curdling scream. That's all she says. You know, so it does. It, it could be maybe she heard lots of screams. You know, it, it just we're only we're, we're basing this solely off of the way the officer wrote the report on what she said. So we don't even know if those were her exact words. But but he did put in quotation marks, a blood-curdling scream. So I don't know. I I know I didn't clarify that anymore. But I, I guess my short answer is I just don't think that what June heard fits with what we know about the actual murder.
0: Amy says, The part of Jennifer's story that I can't get past is the fact that they were looking for the keys to the car. If they are wanting to steal a car, this probably isn't the first time doing it, so wouldn't they know how to hotwire a car? There's no need to get an elderly woman involved, in my opinion.
1: Oh, I agree. Now, that's explained in Jennifer's. Just like you, as an adult, are hearing the story and are are finding the holes in it, Uh, I think Detective Allen had the same issue. Now, man, we're thinking of these these two adult men that come in and are telling this fifteen year old girl who they now want to involve in their crime that they don't know very well. They're telling her in detail what they're going to do. For some reason, they can't do it that night. They want to do it the next night, and then they tell her in the statement that the reason they want the key is because they'll get more money for the car if they don't hotwire it because it causes damage to the the steering column when they have to when they have to hotwire it. So look at the risk benefit there. Now, and granted, we're probably not talking thinking about people that are thinking super logically. But the thing is, in her statement, they're thinking logically. That's why I think that all came from Allen. You know, maybe maybe she said, oh yeah, they came and they wanted to steal her car. So so Detective Allen knows the car keys are missing. Okay, so that, that again, guilty knowledge or what do they know? Detective Allen knows the car keys are missing. Jennifer doesn't if she's not involved. So he needs her to explain why they took the car keys. So then she says, well, they came by and they, and they wanted to steal the car. That was the plan. And then, well, why did they need the keys? That doesn't make sense. They could just hot wire the car. Well, because they said that they'll get less money for the car if it's, if they hot wire it. So they need the keys. So, so when you're thinking about a risk benefit as a thief, your, your options are steal a car and get a few bucks less for it when you chop it because of the steering column damage or. Risk going into an apartment, a woman seeing your face, having interaction interaction with her adding breaking and entering home invasion assault and battery all to the list to get the same car that you that you originally wanted and then oh by the way, don't actually take the car well and especially doing it in the morning in the daylight right yeah that, that was that was a big thing for me too and i i, I hope I, I hope that came across in the episode that was it doesn't fit so these guys are there at night. They come up with they hatch this plan to steal this car, but they need to do it at night, so they come back the next night. Except for it's night while they're doing it, but they don't take it right then. So so now you're so now as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay. So are these that that kind of speaks to a more mature, organized criminal that there's there's a, an organized offender that they they need some something is not right with the scenario. They need a tool. They need a weapon. They need something in order to do this right, and that's why they have to come back the next night. So that speaks to a more organized offender. They don't show up the next night, but they're patient, obviously, because they could have taken the car right then. They could have broken into an apartment right then. They could have done the entire plan right then, but they want to wait till the next night. But then they show up at 9 o'clock, in the, 9.30 in the morning, 9 o'clock whenever it was, and decide to do it in broad daylight when there's, from all these witnesses, there's people walking around all over the goddamn place. There's people everywhere. In, in, in broad daylight, they decide this is the time, which speaks to, Impulsiveness, immaturity—that you know—they're not organized because it's a dumb thing to do. So, so those two, these aren't the same two groups of people. The same—it's not the same person that impulsively breaks into the place in broad daylight on Tuesday morning that meticulously planned the attack on Saturday on Sunday night. It just doesn't add up.
2: Well, if they're planning the attack too, it feels like they would have a way to control. Her, if they were going to. Or a a weapon. Yeah,
1: not a pot or a
2: statue or whatever.
1: Exactly, yeah. So, so yeah, that's our plan. The plan is we need you to knock on the door and tell her exactly who you are so that she'll open the door. But we don't want her to open the door. You're just distracting her so we can come in from the patio. And her story, the plan wasn't to get her to open the door and then follow her in. The plan was they hop over the patio, she knocks on the door to distract her, and then they go in. So, so th- this is the plan, yeah. To go in, and we're going to go in with no weapons. We're going to use a flower pot for a weapon, as I said in the episode. I think it,
0: it's pretty obvious bullshit. Ashley says, since the keys were never recovered, do we know for sure if Catalina really had an H on her key ring?
1: Uh, I think it was. I think it was on the actual key, is the way it was described, and and I would say yes because every Honda key back then had an H. My dad had a Honda Civic around that time, and I I remember when I read that I was picturing his key with the black key, you know, the back, the fob part, or not fob, but the the bigger part of the key was black and it had an H on it. So, yeah, they probably did. And the detective would know that. Any detective would know from, from any car thieves. And and also they had the spare key when Juan Mendiola came with a spare key and took the car. And that's another thing, by the way, is I want to I want to talk to him again because it could be a big break. And when I talked to him, he told me and you'll hear more of that interview later, but he told me that he was told by the police and the prosecutor that Jennifer was a crack addict and that she had broke into her mom's apartment, into his into his aunt's apartment for drug money. He didn't say anything about the car, which makes me wonder, and this is some conspiracy theory shit, so it, just, it, it, it makes me wonder enough to ask him the question, did they give you the key? Hmm. Imagine if all. The, imagine if we find out that the key wasn't taken, that he had the key the whole time. Could I mean could be exactly like it says in there? It says in the report that that Alan told him to move the car and he had a spare key. Hundred percent could be. Seems strange to me, but that's just my family. That I would have another family member that doesn't live with me that has the key to my car. But anyway, so it's just it's on
0: my list of questions to ask Juan next time I see him. Logan wants to know what year and model the car was. He says, Hondas are notoriously the most stolen car, and specifically the 97 Accord is the most stolen car ever. It might be a tight car to a car thief.
1: It was a, we, we figured this out, a, a big group of us on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, started picking apart photos and going through, and I think we came to the conclusion that it was a 1995 Honda Accord. But I will also put out that the reason the Honda Accord was one of the the most stolen cars was because of how easy it was to break into it and hotwire it. It wasn't because it was worth more. It, it, another one back a uh, uh, a little while later was the uh, the Neons in the early two thousands. Dodge Neons surpassed the Accord if I remember correctly as a vehicle that was one of the w- stolen the most. And it, it, and and that's the thing is it, it cuts against all of this. Yeah, it may have been an attractive car to steal because it was an Accord. But what would make it attractive to steal was the ease of both gaining access inside and hot wiring it. That's what made it attractive to steal. So the fact that it's attractive to steal and so they need the keys, those aren't congruent with each other.
0: Lynn says if the slippers are a red herring, is Catalina wearing shoes or barefoot in the crime scene photos? I've worn that type of scuff slipper. It's very easy to walk out of them, even when you're not running for your life.
1: Uh good question. She is barefoot in the crime scene photos, and maybe they're not a red herring. But I, I, I personally think the crime scene indicates that they are. I mean, I mean, it, it is possible. It's possible that she went to meet them at the door. You know, like or, or like you know, as we talked about a couple episodes ago, Zach, where um, maybe she was like trying to close the door as they were coming in. I don't feel like she was very likely on the patio when this started, though, like yeah. we initially thought. The drinking glasses are really what throws a
2: monkey wrench into that idea of that right. she could be on the patio. Because there's no reason the drinking glasses would be
1: out, thrown across the floor right? if she was out on the patio. She wouldn't go, all I, the way. I, into I don't the, think she would. All the way into the kitchen mm-hmm. to get drinking glasses yeah. and start throwing them. Either way, I think that I don't think that she was on the, you know, our initial thought was one inside, one outside. She's on the patio. And in scurrying inside, ran out of her slipper. I don't think that's the case. Maybe she met the 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 offenders at the door and turned and fell out of them. But either way, I think the one that's outside got kicked outside when they were leaving. But yeah, the 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 drinking glasses is it's a big deal like that and, and it and bizarre. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any thoughts or theories on how the drinking glasses got there, other than my little hypothesis of her throwing them at him? The weirdest part to me is they're all setting up. That's they're not, a, though. They're not all setting up? Okay, I don't the, think any of them are. I think they're all on their side. The,
2: the photo I looked like I saw looked like they were sitting up. Maybe
1: I saw something completely different. Well, it's different. super blurry because it's in the video. Okay. If you watch the video, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say they're not, none of them are sitting up, but there's one crime scene photo, exhibit 21, I think, where you can see one of them in the corner okay. of that picture, and I believe that's on its side. I, maybe I'm wrong about that. The other one I know some on Sykes, I can see in my mind the handle sitting kind of sideways on the ground but it's weird is with the crime scene video if you watch the video you get like it's you get moments where the focus comes in and they're clear where you you get a pretty good look at all three glasses at certain times but in me trying to take a screenshot of the video where you could see them all anytime I stopped it or screenshot it like maybe you can see one and the other two are out of focus you know so they just look like blobs as far as where, they, I mean, where they're at, they had to be used
2: almost as a defensive weapon, you would think, right? right. Like she was standing in the kitchen, maybe drying dishes, maybe putting some... I, I don't know if there's any evidence saying that she was doing anything like that, but it just seems weird that they're there. It seems like she'd
1: have to be in that cabinet for some reason. Well, that's the thing is I, I don't think the cabinet door that has kitchen drinking glasses in it is open. Mm-hmm. I don't think she went in there and thought, this is where I keep my my defensive glasses. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she went for, I think that, that they would have been an opportunity. Like maybe that's open because, so if you look at the crime scene photos, there's like a drying rack, mm-hmm. it's full of dishes. So maybe she had just started to put dishes away and had that cupboard open because she was putting dishes away and then use them. Maybe she didn't throw, I don't know. But when I looked at the scene, what I don't see, there's nothing spilled. The car, you know, it's light, very light colored carpet. I don't know how long it was before the video was taken, but it's pretty early. It seems like Eva's still sitting there. You know, nobody's been taken away yet, but there's, there's, there does not appear to be any wet spots on the floor around them. Certainly not any stains like if they had like coffee or soda or something that would might leave a stain on the floor. It looks like there's just three empty glasses. I just feel like if you're going to defend yourself, you're going to go
2: for something that's more harmful. You're, you know, the glasses right. seem like they were just easy opportunity. That maybe they were in the drying rack. Maybe, like you said, they were putting them away. They're just, that just seems too easy. It doesn't seem like that's something you would go for. Right. Like, it seems like you'd go for a knife, which is possibly like your theory in the episodes that that's where the knife came from, was right? Like that she went for a knife. But it doesn't seem like you'd go for that
1: second. It seems like you'd go for that first. No, I can't, I cannot piece it together in my mind how the glasses got. Cause I thought, like, could the the killers have put them there or something? But like, it doesn't, no. And, and, and the fact that there's three is weird too. It's not even like you can think, oh, she had one in each hand. Because yeah, I thought, what if she was filling them with water to go out and water her plants? But there's there's three glasses, pretty good sized glasses. So she's not carrying three glasses. She's not serving anybody. You know, and, and then some questions came in, like, well, what if whoever did this, she invited them in, and she was serving them drinks? Well, there's no drinks around. There's no you know pitcher of lemonade. Also, don't forget that the door was the door was locked. The deadbolt was locked, if I understand correctly, and the keyless deadbolt and the safety chain. We're all locked. You don't let somebody in your door and lock all three. I mean, that's some horror movie shit. Yeah. You know, somebody comes in and you, and you pull even the, the chain, the security chain shut. So she, I don't think she, there's no way she let somebody in. And, I, and you're not serving somebody that came through your patio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> somebody doesn't break through your patio and you serve them a drink.
0: Nextlin says, if we believe that Eva, KD, and Youngster scheme to intimidate Catalina, doesn't that increase the odds of Jen's knowledge or involvement? Since Eva only knew the boys through Jen.
1: I think if that was the case, sure you would think that Jen would at least know something if she wasn't involved. But I don't think that's what happened. I mean, I, I don't know what happened, but in the potential scenarios that I have in my mind at this point, based on the evidence that we have, and none of them is Eva conspiring with Katie and Youngster to harm Catalina. I don't think that's it at all. She didn't even know them. One thing I keep coming back to is is there when they're interviewed in separate rooms, both of them give an identical detailed step-by-step narrative about how they woke up when they heard the screams that, and that's one thing that like, that's, that's at this point, at least that's an anchor for me because they, 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 they come up with those details identically when they're being interviewed separately. So that's just not, but yeah, I mean, if, if that was the case, you'd think Jennifer would at least know one of them at least, but, but, but then again, remember if Jennifer knows what happened, then she's an idiot. The only way she's getting out of prison is for the police to figure out who actually did this. So go. I mentioned in the episode the possibility of a plea bargain. And, you know, once she's arrested, and mind you, she wasn't charged with murder. She was charged with capital murder. And once she realizes that's the case, because I think that, you know, innocent or guilty, when she gave that statement, I think she thought she wasn't in trouble. I 100% thought she believed, okay, I'm going to tell them these two guys did it so I can go home. Not thinking that her being a part of it would still equal a capital murder sentence or, or charge for her. Once she's charged and leading to trial, if she knew who did it, I mean, can any of you listening right now honestly believe that she would keep that to herself? That she would, you know, take a charge or take a case to protect somebody else? There's just no way. And then beyond that, then you go into post conviction in her appeals, in her attorney, you know, through, through her appeals attorneys and everybody. She's always maintained she doesn't know who did it. And, and the only way she's going to get out is if we figure out who did it so that's why I say like if, if she knows who did this if she's innocent and knows who did this then she's an idiot if she's never told anybody and I don't think that Jennifer's an idiot you're going to hear from Jennifer next week she's not an idiot she's very smart and she knows that and and to me that's another the fact that she has never thrown anyone else under the bus she has always said I just don't know I don't know what happened even when it would be to her advantage to say, to tell who did it if she knows, is is another indicator to me that she genuinely just doesn't know what happened. I want to go
2: back to Katie and Youngster for just a second. I'm still confused at their whole presence. So Eva doesn't really know them. So if Eva doesn't know them, why are they colluding with her? You know, the story is that Jennifer says Youngster is her boyfriend. Now, we don't know if that's totally accurate or not, but it sounds like, that you know, from the story she was in bed with him and got out of bed to go answer this page. Right. So why would they collude against her
1: rather than collude against Eva or whatever it may be? Well, they didn't. So when you when you look at the at their statements, so Detective Allen writes a one thing we're gonna see as we go along the way is Detective Allen's summary of what happened compared to what did happen is never accurate. So, for example, he writes in his report that Youngster first said Jennifer was there, but then he came around once I, again, once I told him that we know from Eva and KD that she wasn't there, he came around and said that she was. Then we read his written statement, which was taken after that. And what does it say? It says Jennifer was there. Like, it's not true. So so they didn't conspire. KD says that he was that he saw through the you know that this whole thing's happening with Eva Eva takes off and then he says where well, his narrative gets flunk gets goofy and doesn't line up anymore again around those screams when Eva's leaving but then he says i came down and i saw Jennifer walking up from the other side so he's alibying Jennifer in his statement youngster says Jennifer was there with Eva when the screaming was happening so he's alibying Jennifer neither one of them conspired against Jennifer what they did do is help Eva, meaning they they confirmed to police that Eva was, in fact, yelling into the apartment trying to help and that they were there when they heard the, the man's voice from inside call back out. So what they did is they alibied Eva because if that story's true, then she's outside when the attack's happening. But it's also the point in both of their narratives where their story falls apart. It's a flowing narrative before that. It's a flowing narrative after that. And that moment, the whole screaming part, nothing makes sense. Everything's jumbled. Katie's doesn't match. Eva's doesn't match. Youngster's, but none of them conspired against no, none of those, excuse me, because someone did. We're going to hear about it this weekend, Uh, but neither Katie or youngster conspired against Jennifer. All they did is, help provide an alibi to Eva. Now, I'm not saying whether it was they were just confirming her true alibi or they were helping her make an
0: alibi up. But that's what they did. Barbara says, can you give us the timeline of only actual proven events from the time Jennifer's page went off until the manager and handyman went into the apartment? There does not seem to be enough time for the murder in this window from all the false accounts.
1: Well, the problem is that we don't have time stamps. I can give you events. So... I would say that we know that she got a page, two pages actually. Say that we know that she left the apartment and she told Youngster and Eva that she got a page and she was going to use a phone. We know that she then arrived at Janet's apartment, which is four buildings away in the very front of the complex, and she used Janet's phone. We know that she called Craig and we know that Craig called her back. Now Jennifer says she called the phone company in between there, but that we don't know. There's there's only one source for that and that's her, so I won't say we know that. But we know she was at Janet's use the phone. I would say that we know that she returned to the scene from the east. That she didn't walk from Janet's apartment up the main driveway, but instead she took the sidewalk around the side, the side of the apartment and approached from the approached from the east. I would say that we know that she knocked on Catalina's door. In my opinion, we know she knocked on June's door too, but per our previous discussion, I'll, I'll say that's still up in the air. We know that Red Rock and Housen came up to the scene while she was knocking on the door. And we know that Jennifer was at the scene when Eva returned with Truesdale and with Pam Wiley, the manager, because their statements is, now Pam, Pam got there before Truesdale did. But she said when she got there, Jen was there. Other than, and, and we know that after the body was found, the Jennifer walked into the apartment.
0: Tim says, was there a table near the cups on the floor? We have an elderly lady who might have thrown the cups at her attacker, but the cups are close to each other. Did she hit them or possibly have had people over the night before?
1: Uh, I, I went back and verified with the photos and video. After I saw this question, and no, there's no table there. So there's not like a coffee table in front of the couch. They're laying in the middle of the living room floor, in front of the couch, and no, there's no table anywhere around there they could have been sitting on. And just circling back to those glasses, uh, the drinking glasses. I, I do want to say this: we do not know how they got there. I'm not pretending. Like I said, we, we we've thrown out some scenarios, but but I don't think I, I don't think we can confirm exactly how they got there what makes them so significant is the fact that they are there and the only thing that, that that we i think that we do know is that they got there during the commission of the murder and that's important because Jennifer doesn't know that and it's not in Jennifer's confession that's you know when we're picking apart i said it over and over again in a state, in that statement analysis i'm looking for does she demonstrate any guilty knowledge of the crime that couldn't have been provided by police? And the answer to that is no. And in the the pot, the fact that she says that she was hit with a pot, which is what I'm sure Detective Allen thought. There's a pot right there and dirt everywhere, and they didn't have the autopsy back yet. The fact that she says that's what happened, and then we find out later from the autopsy that she actually wasn't it doesn't look like she was hit with a pot, but we know that she was hit with the metal stand. Uh, is it, those are the indicators that we're looking for. She's telling the story based solely off of what the police knew, not from actual guilty knowledge of the crime. Now, if Jennifer had told a narrative that did include those glasses, I would be much more suspect. But the fact that they're not even part of her narrative to me is a huge indicator that she doesn't know what happened.
0: Carl says, so on the side of quote, if she didn't do it, what other leads were out there? Or was the case just focused on Jennifer? No, the, the case was
1: only ever focused on Jennifer There was no investigation and that's the problem Is there were, there were witness statements Taken at the scene In those first few hours And then a couple of written statements And Detective Allen had Tunnel vision 100% And it was all based, this entire case Was built Using tunnel vision all around Eva Mondragon's statements Which I'm going to break down for you This Sunday And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. Do you want me to give you a moment to speak at the beginning, Zach? I,
2: I don't care. I'm going to be like, I'll be honest, Bob. I don't know what if she did or not. So I'll say it. I can say it cleaner. Hey, God. So, Zach, did she do it? I'll be honest, Bob. I don't know if she did it or not.
0: <laughs> right. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day
1: out at Chessington.com.